Good evening. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 34, page 463 in the Pew Bibles. And while you're doing that, just to say how good it's been to be with you again today. Always a warm welcome in the crescent. Thank you for that. And thank you for your continued prayers as we uh, labor for his kingdom in Shankill Bible Church. Psalm 34. I'll read it and then I'll pray and then we'll get into it together. This is God's word of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you for your Son. May your Holy Spirit stir our hearts for him as we contemplate the scriptures together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, big day this Friday. They said it would never happen. Some doubt it will happen still. 
as much as I don't want things to change, I really don't have a say, do I? There's no going back. All we can do is embrace the future. What am I talking about? It should be obvious, shouldn't it? I can only be talking about altogether now my birthday. It's my, it's my birthday on Friday, 31st of January, same day every year. If we're up to me, I wouldn't age. But there's nothing I can do about it. There's no real going back, is there? We were all thinking that, right? My birthday? Sure, what else could be happening this Friday, I wonder? Don't worry, I know. Big changes for us both uh, this week. I will gracefully move into my late 30s, and you guys will leave the EU. And uh, big changes like this, we don't normally like because there's lots, there's a, a loss of security. Uh, we prefer the status quo. Uh, we can actually be quite fearful of change in our life. It's that unknown element that we fear the most. Change can be one of our fears. Now, with a lot of our fears, uh, we have the choice to keep them at bay. So, for example, I'm not going to find myself randomly falling out of a plane one day doing a skydive. For that to happen, there would have to be a series of steps that I would have had to take and to be in that position. And you can argue that's why God made us with the skill uh, to fear. It's a biological ability to help us steer away from putting ourselves in danger. So we, we can manage successfully a lot of our fears. We can avoid them. But we can't manage them all. What if, me, what if my late 30s brings me face to face with one of my fears that I have no control over? What if Brexit means real uncertainty and turns our world upside down? What if I lose my job? What if we lose our income? What if we lose our house? What if the NHS crumbles? Losing my health is a massive fear of mine, probably for you too. As I get older, that becomes more likely. Or what if suffering comes to one of our loved ones? It's the last thing we'd want, isn't it? If the life of our spouse is threatened, if one of my children becomes ill, Poor health might be cliche, you think, but perhaps it's your fear is more nuanced than that. Maybe your fear is the thought of your child maybe moving away from home, moving away from the Lord. Or maybe you don't care about any of those things. Uh, what you really fear is isolation. That any day now, you're just going to be forgotten about. Well, the message of the Bible and the message today is not, don't worry about it, you'll be fine. Because you might not be fine. There's every chance that your fear will eventually uh, win, over you, win over you. So what hope do we have then when we, by no choice of our own, finally face our fears? And there's no change of circumstances coming. What hope do we have then? Well, in our psalm uh, tonight, David suggests an answer for us. And if he does have an answer for us, I need David to be real with me here. I don't just want them to teach us a little trick, some sort of mind trick to help us deal with dire circumstances, because the fears that we face and I'm going to face are real, the most real experiences we'll ever have in our life. So if there is going to be a help, it's got to be equally as real and equally as impactful. So what is it? We read in verse 4, 
in our psalm, David said, The Lord delivered me from all my fears. And the sense of the word fear there in how it's used is the worst kind of dread and terror. And David said he experienced a delivery from all of his worst fears. Now, we'll see in a bit that there was a particular circumstantial delivery that David experienced uh, that led him to write this psalm. But in that line, all my fears, David is pointing to a delivery greater than that one instance. A delivery that changed and altered his fear of his worst fears, all of them. And I think the psalm as a whole would have us hope that it's the fear of the Lord that drives out the fear of anything else. Now, but by that, the psalm is also not saying, you think you should be afraid of X, Y, and Z? It's God you need to be afraid of. It's not saying that. To have a fear of the Lord is to have a reverence of him to the God of the universe. To be in awe of him in the context of being in relationship with him at the same time. And because we can have that real unity with God, we can be more satisfied, more satisfied with that than the fearing of our worst fears. So, having sorted what we are to understand by the fear of the Lord, we're going to spend the rest of our time looking together at what Psalm 34 has to say about the fear of the Lord. And I believe it's proclaiming to us that the fear of the Lord brings deliverance, righteousness, and good works. And we'll see that over a couple of points. So the first thing we're going to see now is that the fear of the Lord brings deliverance. The fear of the Lord brings deliverance. Let's look at these verses again, verse 4 and 7. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Verse 17 and 19, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. You might have caught at the start of the psalm. Uh, we're given the context that occasioned this psalm. It's a story that takes place in 1 Samuel 21 where David, who was anointed Messiah at this point, uh, he's on the run from King Saul. And Saul has been rejected by, by the Lord. And Saul is jealous of David. And David, we're told, flees. He flees to the king of his enemies, the Philistines, uh, the king of Gath. And, and he's in a tight spot because David has got history with the Philistines. The Lord gave him a victory over the giant Goliath, uh, who was also from Gath, and this made David into a bit of a celebrity, yes, with his own people, but also with his enemies, the, the Philistines. And he, he, he's there, uh, he, he makes his way to the king of Gath, and he totally gets recognized. He gets recognized by the king's servants as the man who took down our champion. So he's in a bind. And the author uh, of Samuel tells us that he becomes afraid of the king of Gath. So what does he do? When you read that story, he pulls a stroke. He pretends to be a madman. He pretends to go insane. It's probably not something we try ourselves the next time we want to be avoided by the person we know down the town. But this was high stakes for David. The Philistines lost a great battle because of David. And here he was alone, right in the middle of enemy territory. So he had to do something. Pretends to go insane, and it worked. The king basically said, sure, I have enough madmen in my house, get him out of here. And David 
had experienced a life-saving deliverance through what seemed foolish means. The question is, can we, can we draw parallels uh, to crazy scenarios in our own life to say that this, this, is how, this is how God delivers? Remember when I was uh, studying to be a teacher at second level, in my, my year of practice, we were told that every lesson we had to do, we had to do a lesson plan. And uh, over the year, you know, you would have built up uh, a scheme of work. Now, I know Amy's studying to be a teacher, so Amy, don't do this, please. Um, so anyway, over the year, you know, your lesson plans would have built up into your body of work. And um, But the master teacher I had, he was very laid back. He says, he says don't, don't mind those lesson plans. Don't bother doing them. Grand, I thought. He came to me four times a year, and at the end of the year, an external examiner came along to, uh, to see how I was getting on. And I know she, would have, she was going to ask me for this body of work, all these lesson plans I, I was meant to have done, and I hadn't done them. Now, I didn't want to sell the guy out. He was a nice guy. So uh, what I did was I prepared a lesson for the, the class he was coming to, and then that morning pulled a blank stack of printed paper from the printer in the staff room, stuck it in my folder with the one completed lesson plan on the top, and sure enough, she visited my class. She asked for the scheme of work. I plonked that on the table. Flipped open the folder, and she saw a fairly bulky pile of, 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 of papers with one completed lesson plan on the top, and I was fine, and she said no more. What a deliverance from the Lord! This is what David is talking about, right? He gets us out of tight spots that we get ourselves into. Let's not be so quick to compare ourselves to the shoes of the Messiah. I think there's something bigger going on here. The Lord delivered his Messiah in this instance. The Israelites was meant to sing this psalm and praise God that their king was delivered by their God. And this meant continued life and health and protection for them as a people, which in a sense meant their own deliverance was linked to their king's deliverance. Can we parallel that with the deliverance of our own Messiah, Jesus? Does this psalm take us to Jesus, our Messiah, in a specific way? Let's read again, verses 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. There was one Messiah who this psalm was ultimately written for. Jesus would have spent his whole life singing this psalm. He knows he is the only one who's ever lived a fully righteous life before his neighbor and God. And in his ministry years, he was afflicted for it, and he ended up on a cross. Yet he knew his Lord, his Father, was the deliverer. And though on the cross he was suffocating in great agony, his bones would not be broken. Now you may think to a dying man on a cross that a small change, but it meant that the triune God was still in control and that he would be the one to give his life. It wouldn't be taken from him. It also signifies for us that those who would take refuge in Christ those united to his death on the cross by faith would, in a sense, not suffer any broken bones either. We would remain intact following our death. 
So if you're in, if you're in Christ tonight by faith, that our hearts reflect on that assured delivery that is ours because Christ our Messiah was delivered. It's absolutely secure. It's absolutely certain. Jesus was delivered from death. He rose from the grave. And we will too. Like Christ, we will be raised and live with him eternally in our new bodies that he's prepared for us. What a deliverance that is. So David's delivery as Messiah has an importance to us but because it points to the deliverance we have in Christ. But his deliverance as an individual is important to us too. David experienced deliverance as an individual. We've seen the psalm now. He's living way before Jesus came to the cross. Yet he knew that he himself had secured deliverance from ultimate condemnation. But how did he know that? Let's look again at what he wrote. Verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. In the last verse, 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David sought the Lord. He cried to the Lord from a place of poverty, not financial poverty, but knowing in his very being he was nothing. And from that place he cried and God answered him and God saved him from all his fears all his troubles. And this is the anchor that he has in his soul, that he knows God is the deliverer from ultimate condemnation. You say he can't be serious then. Condemnation changes the station. Condemnation for what? What what would God condemn me for? I've done nothing wrong. Well, condemnation from God for the sin we have in our life. And this is what the Bible says is wrong in the world. But all that was wrong and out of order with David and his world was set right by the deliverance he experienced by his God. And maybe that is why he feels the need to write this psalm as an acrostic. Every verse begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. That is the order of it. It helps us get the sense that David knows God has restored him to a relationship with himself as man was always meant to enjoy That's the right order. Well, in Jesus, that's our experience too, if we have faith in him. We've known a delivery from ultimate condemnation from our sin. In Christ, we begin to experience the reordering that God is doing in the world with his creation and his people. And David is evangelical about this deliverance. Let's read again verses 8 and 9. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. When we really love something, we tell others about it. Think about it. We've all gushed about that movie that we love or that place we like to visit on holiday. Uh, In my local village in Shankill in Dublin, there's a new Thai takeaway that's just opened up. And it's absolutely so good. The crispy chicken dish is out of this world. I have, I've been so overcome by this particular dish and this place that I got vouchers for friends of mine for Christmas. I want people to go there and experience the food. Because I know once they've tasted it, 
My need for convincing them is over. They're going to be won over by the food there. Am I as excited to tell people about my deliverance in Christ? A lot of the time I worry about what I'm able to defend about the Bible, what it says about sexuality or evolution. And it's important to do that. But David just says, taste them for yourself. He's so good. And that's easy, isn't it? Let's keep that in mind next time we're debating a friend and just say, read the word for yourself. God is in it. He'll convince you of himself. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just come to him and taste him. David also says, fear the Lord. For those who fear him have no lack. He'll invite the children to come to him for him to teach them the fear of the Lord. I wonder what David's lesson plan would look like for that. I think he'd simply be showing and telling them how good God it is for them to taste in themselves and that will produce a godly fear. A godly fear. Not a fear that leads us to be frightened out of our wits by this God, but a fear that leaves us in awe of him, in reverence, in holy reverence of him. I've always thought it's kind of like the sea. Huge body of water. You can swim in it, you can sail in it, you can fish in it. But if you don't respect it, it's devastating. David says, come to the Lord, taste that he is good and leave with a godly fear. There's a deliverance into a relationship with the living God where we're free from condemnation, knowing the right order of things, man enjoying relationship with his God. And in that relationship, he will carry us through all the afflictions that come with living in a disordered world to be with him forever. And knowing that and hoping in that, real hope is what allows us to cope when our fear finally lands, when our friends go, when our family go, when our health goes. What will always remain now and forever is that deliverance from the Lord. With all that may come in my late 30s, and for you guys with Brexit, may we continue to fear the Lord, to enjoy his presence that is ours because of Jesus, to trust him with our worst nightmares that we're eventually going to face. David says he is near to us. He is close to us. When we cry for help, the Lord of the universe hears us. Read verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Are you brokenhearted tonight? Are you crushed in spirit? The Lord is close. He is near. This is more than just a trick or way of thinking. This is a promise. This is a spiritual reality for those who fear the Lord, for those of us who have tasted his goodness, those of us in Christ. Cry to him, Christian. The Lord hears because he is near. We don't have to travel to a temple to get close to the presence of God. In Christ, we have his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. He's a refuge for us today as much as he will be for eternity. He is a delivering God for those who fear him. And like David, we can have the praise of the Lord always on our lips that no matter what happens, we can know that he is good, that we lack nothing. We have all we need no matter what the circumstances are, such is his deliverance.
the fear of the Lord brings deliverance. Secondly, the fear of the Lord brings righteousness and good works. We're living in a strange time in the Republic anyway. And you guys probably aren't too far behind. But we're kind of overlapping between a time when there is a general respect for Christianity and many of its principles just were in the air, part of our culture. Now that respect is gone as a whole. Yet, funnily enough, the culture will still try and stand for some of the Christian principles. So thankfully, in general, there's support for the poor. Uh, there's help towards those in need, help towards the homeless, the widow, the carer. But increasingly, it's not good enough just to be applying good and charity. Your reasons for doing so are also examined. And if your ethos, if your reasons are motivated by any religious interest, you're vilified. And the culture would rather you stop. They'd actually rather you stop doing your good and your charity because you have a Christian worldview. For example, there's a, there's a pro-life group in, in Dublin, Jenna Care. Uh, they, they seek to help expectant mothers who, who need, need help. And they posted a, a hamper of some of the, 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 the things that they have to provide for these mothers. And uh, they posted online. And they were vilified on social media um, because they have a godly understanding of, of the child in the womb. They're hated. You see it in the schools now. Uh, where I live in about uh, 15, 20 mile radius, in September alone, there's six new brand new schools opening up. And uh, none of them have a religious ethos. That's patronage. You can't be seen to be providing an education with a Christian worldview uh, anymore. Uh, there's a new maternity hospital to be built on a property which is owned by the Catholic uh, Church. Why is it owned by the Catholic Church? Because that is where the olden was. And uh, they were the ones who, 150, 200 years ago, were motivated by a godly worldview to try and do something about bringing proper health care to society, to society. But now they're being handed out uh, of the property because of you know, their religious understanding. So the ethos behind good works is a hot topic as ever today. David is saying in our psalm that there is a righteousness that comes from the fear of the Lord and there's an application of that righteousness for the God-fearer and it's simply that we do good. Look at uh, verses 11 to 14 again. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? And here's a practical instruction. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David says, The God-fearer keeps his tongue from evil, turns away from evil and does good and pursues peace. These are the hallmarks of a righteous man. And we think about what we are hearing this morning. The Bible is clear. The God-fearer isn't righteous because of their good works. The righteous man does good works because their righteousness is not their own. It comes from Christ. We've been made righteous when God delivers us from condemnation. 
And so we've been delivered from condemnation into a life of good and good works. And so the Christian does good. Yes, because we're commanded to, but also because God is good. And he is spreading his goodness in the universe. He continues to do good. He's restoring what was declared good at creation, man dwelling with God. He's correcting the order. So if God is good, taste and see that the Lord is good, and he's working good for humanity, and the fact that we're commanded to do good, then that is all the motivation we need to do good as God fears. Show me any other reason that is better and bigger than that as a motivation for good works. There's no better ethos. So Christian, let's continue to do good because God is good. And he has worked hard in bringing good to humanity. And even if the world doesn't like what we do and hates our motivation for doing it, it's better to suffer for doing good than it is to do nothing or evil. And that's exactly the Apostle Peter's point in his first letter when he quotes verses 12 to 16 of the psalm. His readers were suffering for being Christians in the first century. And part of his whole message is Christ suffered, so his followers are going to suffer. And in chapter 3 in his letter where he quotes our psalm, they were suffering for doing good. They were suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering for believing and preaching Jesus. And he uses this psalm of David to say, keep going, God is for you. The eyes of the Lord are towards you. Keep seeking peace. Don't return evil done to you with evil. And in our time and place in history, I think we can identify Peter's audience. Our culture is wanting less and less to do with toxic Christianity. It wants us to apply our Christianity less and less. But we know what our lost friends need more than anything. They need Jesus. And like David, we want the poor to hear us and be glad. So we showed them. We showed them how good it is for our society to have Christians in it. We identify need and seek to be a blessing. In the best way that we can, we do good works. We help the poor, give our time and money in the, to the alleviation of suffering. Knowing, though, that the best thing the world needs from us is for us to gush about our Savior Jesus and the deliverance that we have in him. Because he can be theirs too. Deliverance can be theirs. In Peter's letter, there's a little hint, though, when he writes... That though the attack was coming from without, he encourages unity of the believers too. He wants them to be of one mind and to show brotherly love. Like the psalm says, keep our lips from speaking deceit. That can be applied outside the church and inside the church. Christians, we have enough pressure from outside that we really can't afford a breakdown within the body. And I know what it's like being in a church for a long time uh, with the same people. Or maybe you're here for the first time and you're, you're getting to know people. Um, it's tempting when we, at home, following a gathering, our tongue starts giving off at someone. That's what somebody said to me this morning in church. Well, the word says here, turn away from it. If we have a problem, seek peace with that person instead. Let's strive to do good towards the body as much as we can. This is the behavior of those who fear the Lord in the world. People who've been won over by God's goodness 
but also his awesomeness. People who fear the Lord know deliverance. We know we are delivered from ultimate condemnation because Christ was delivered from death. Not one bone was broken. He gave up his life. The Father raised him from the dead. He's ascended and he's reigning now. His experience will be ours. And because that is the absolute truth, we're able to face all the troubles and fears of living in a fallen world with a real ability to rest on God and his nearness. And we seek to do good, spreading the goodness of God, proclaiming his son Jesus. Let's, uh, let's close in a prayer and I'll hand back to, to Ben. Father, we are but a poor people who have known a great delivery from condemnation because of your son, Jesus. Help us to continue to fear you in the way you deserve and help us to continue to hope in the great deliverance that we have because that is our greatest hope. It conquers and casts out all our fears. Lord, we praise you that we've been made righteous. And because you are good and are spreading your goodness in the world, we can be part of that too, pursuing good and peace in our community and also in our church. We praise you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.